the unfortunate part is in medicine, we're not expected to be nutritionists in any way, shape, or form. We don't get a lot of nutrition education, yet we know that the number one intervention for any disease is diet and exercise. So you have all these doctors out there who they just go by 50 to 60 carbs per meal. Got it. Okay, blood sugar up. Okay, add more insulin. We're just caught in this algorithm and nobody has really been able to step back and use their brain. And there are some people that are doing this. And I think patients are getting smarter too. They have people like you and, and I and, and so many people where they can get this information and kind of start to think for themselves. Because I always tell people you don't need your doctor's permission to eat a particular diet or way. The solution to a lot of what's really going on in this health crisis is that we all need to take personal accountability for our own health. Welcome to the Dr. Ashley Show. Welcome to the Dr. Ashley Show. I'm Dr. Ashley, and today I am so excited about our guest on the show, Dr. Jamie Seaman. Dr. Jamie Seaman is a board-certified obstetrician and gynecologist practicing in Omaha, Nebraska. Born and raised in the state, she played collegiate softball for the Corn Huskers. She has a Bachelor's of Science degree in Nutrition, Exercise, and Health Sciences, she then went on to graduate from medical school and completed her OB-GYN residency at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. She currently is in private practice at Mid-City OB-GYN, offering a full range of services in obstetrics, gynecology, robotic surgery, and primary care. She completed a fellowship in integrative medicine at the University of Arizona School of Medicine. She is a board-certified ketogenic nutrition specialist through the American Nutrition Association. She has a passion for fitness, preventative medicine, and ketogenic therapy, not only in her medical practice, but in her own life. She and her husband, Ben, have three young daughters. Wow, Dr. Janie Seaman, thanks for being here. That's a mouthful. <laughs> it's an honor to be here. Well, I appreciate it. I'd love for you to start by just sharing your story a little bit, how you got into the field that you're in, and your passion around nutrition and fitness. So I'm born and raised in the state of Nebraska, so I'm near and dear to to uh, the place that I live. But my story is that I I grew up here in the Midwest. I was an athlete as a little girl, um, but kind of lived the traditional life of the 1980s. We ate a very highly processed diet of hamburger helper, probably without the hamburger, and um, and a lot of fast food. I went on to play college softball and I was pursuing a degree in nutrition. So this was my first exposure of, you know, what does food really do to our bodies? And I was on a pre-med track. I knew I, I, I thought I wanted to go to medical school. My mom was a nurse growing up and was much of an inspiration of, of mine to pursue a career as a, as a physician. And I got to college and I was weightlifting and getting this degree in nutrition. Um, but then after I graduated, I met my husband and we got married. I went to medical school. And there was this big shift in my life going from, I don't want to say being forced to train all the time, but now I'm having to make my own time to go to the gym. I'm very much more sedentary. I'm sitting in the library for long hours of the day and taking tests on Saturday. And I really started to struggle with my weight. And after college, I had kind of put this whole idea of like exercise and weightlifting, like, yeah, that's just what you do when you're an athlete. So I got pregnant with my first daughter when I was in medical school. My husband and I wanted to start a family and pregnancy, uh, I didn't know at the time, very naive, is one of the greatest physiologic stress of, of your lifetime. And I ended up developing um, prediabetes after I had three children and hypothyroidism and I was on these medications. And so here I was as a young physician and out in private practice and kind of tired and 
you know, just sleep on the couch at eight o'clock. It was hard to stay awake. And I just thought that's what life was like when your husband's a police officer and he works nights and you're a doctor and you work all these hours. I mean, I had a long list of reasons why, you know, I was tired and I didn't feel that great. So um, I had a, a tragedy happen in my life in 2015 that kind of shook my world a little bit and really made me kind of look myself in the mirror. Um, you know, as a physician, you know, I should be the walking, talking billboard of health, right? We're like telling patients all the time, like you got to eat right and move more. And, and it really started to make me question what we were doing in medicine, because here I was like with all the knowledge in the world, I had a medical degree, a nutrition degree, I'm a former college athlete. And here I am with, uh, you know, uh, overweight BMI and pre-diabetes and hypothyroidism. So it really changed the trajectory of my career in medicine and my life, frankly. Um, I went back to fellowship. I really started to dive into the literature and I completely changed the way that I lived my life. And um, it's brought me to where I am today. What are the biggest changes that you made? Well, the very first thing I did was look at my diet because I had watched my own mother struggle. She had lost and gained about the same 100 pounds like three times in her lifetime. And she always did it through caloric restriction. You know, it was just um, eating egg whites and tilapia. And I got this degree in nutrition and they said, you know, that's bad for you. It's all about calories. And so I started to really look back at the literature. And I'm like, gosh, just like doesn't make sense because I come from actually a family of normal BMI diabetics. And it just didn't make sense to me why, you know, I was an athlete. I had worked out. And honestly, if anybody looked at a picture of me at this time, they wouldn't even to this day, when I tell people I used to have prediabetes, they look at me like with crazy eyes. Um, and it's kind of like, well, what does that look like? Because these days, a lot of people have it and don't even realize it. But when I started to get back into, you know, the literature, it made sense that therapeutic carb reduction, taking away carbohydrates out of the diet would make the most sense for reversing something like prediabetes because um, carbs are what cause us to secrete insulin and it's an insulin resistance problem. So I didn't start with a ketogenic diet, but I started with um, Whole30. I thought, get all the processed foods out. That made sense. But it was way too much work to try to make my own sauces and condiments and things like that. I didn't really have the time, but I did it for the 30 days with, with a couple other uh, doctor friends of mine. And then I transitioned to a paleo diet. And, and that was good. I was starting to you know see some benefits. Of course, I had cleaned up all the processed things out of my diet. Um, but I really like cheese. So I had a hard time sticking with the paleo diet. And yeah. so then I transitioned into a ketogenic diet uh, going from 2015 into 2016. And oh my gosh, it was like the lights came on. When I would get into ketosis, my appetite, um, I had, it was like, I felt like I finally had control. I was somebody my entire life that lived thinking about my next snack or meal. Like it was this constant, like hangry, I always thought about food. Um, I had a little bit of binging behavior through my like teenage years um, and even somewhat into my, you know, adult years. And the ketogenic diet was the first time that I like felt, oh my gosh, like I could really do this. And the weight started to come off, like the brain fog went away. My energy started to come back. And nutrition was like the very first thing that I did that just made like a huge shift in my world. And there's a lot of other pieces to the puzzle that we can totally dive into. But I do think that nutrition is such an important part of that because it's something we do every day. So it's something where we have a decision to make multiple times per day, you know, that's either going to make us feel good or feel bad. Um, there's no good and bad foods. It's just how our body 
you know, deals with this type of energy. And it was a total game changer for me. And even to this day, I eat a very high protein, low carb lifestyle. Do you? Yeah. 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 yeah our it's, I mean, you know, you know what makes you feel good. And then when you do something different, you're like, yeah, no, nope, I don't feel good doing that. <laughs> yeah. You know, our stories are similar. I was the professional ballet dancer before I went and, and earned my PhD in sports nutrition and chronic disease. And I always struggled with my weight. I counted calories like crazy. I restricted myself. I did all the things that we're told to do, like eat uh, less and move more. And it just didn't work. I had stress fractures and I actually had to step away from my professional dancing career because my body just couldn't handle it anymore. And I, after I earned my PhD, I went to become a registered dietitian because I thought that's what I needed to be this true expert in the field of weight management. But I learned all the same stuff that you learned in your nutrition degree. And it just didn't work for me. I was hungry. I had cravings just like you did. And so started to do my own research and actually came out doing quite the opposite of what we're told to do when it comes to nutrition. Yeah. So, you know, and when I was taking our medical nutrition therapy courses during the dietetics part of my education, we're always told to eat a consistent number of carbohydrates, you know, 45 to 60 grams of carbs with every meal and snack. And I would raise my hand and be curious, like, why are we continuing to eat carbohydrates if I look at type 2 diabetes kind of like a carbohydrate intolerance situation? So why do you think that we're continuously told to eat carbohydrates and eat a pretty high load of them, even when we have metabolic dysfunction like type 2 diabetes? Can you explain that and also explain a little bit about what's happening to those of us who are normal BMI type 2 diabetes because I had pre-diabetes and had a normal BMI as well. Yeah. Well, let me dive into that first, I guess. So the problem is, is we have this idea that everybody is just over fat, that we have an obesity problem and obesity is what causes all these problems with carbon tolerance and heart disease and cancer and, and all these other chronic diseases that we see in medicine. But the real problem is that we have too much visceral fat which is the most dangerous kind of fat. So the fat that we all think of when we think of obesity is subcutaneous fat. It's the fat we can pinch on our bodies. And that particular fat is actually not that dangerous. It is in large volumes, but it, for how much we obsess over it, it's not the type of fat we should be thinking about. Visceral fat is the fat that's deep down inside of our tummies and it's what surrounds our organs. And this is more just like your metabolic bomb. So when you anything that drives up visceral fat drives up chronic disease. And so you could look like a normal BMI. Uh, you could be a normal weight. You could have a normal waist circumference. I'm, you know, throwing out all these proxies that we use for defining overweight and obesity, and you could have a ton of visceral fat. And we're not measuring it in medicine. We're not putting patients in DEXAs and MRIs and seeing how much visceral fat they have. But this is an, a highly inflammatory type of fat um, that causes insulin resistance, prediabetes, and type 2 diabetes. And the reason that it's hiding and lurking in our society is because it increases with lack of exercise and weight training, with poor sleep, with stress, with highly processed, high-fat, high-carb diets, lots of different crappy ingredients that we have in our foods, um, and alcohol use, things that are really pervasive. These All things drive up visceral fat. And so it can be hiding. And even if you you know look normal from the outside, which is exactly what happened to me. Um, the other part of your question, you know, why would in a degree program, you know, you're teaching about nutrition. Why do we continue to this day to recommend carbohydrates, you know, 
on a consistent basis per meal, per snack to somebody that has carbon tolerance? And it's really a twofold answer. The first answer is that nutrition is something that's really hard to study. It's hard to do an actual randomized controlled word study where we actually take a person and we lock them in, you know, a, a, the ward is essentially what it's called. There are so many inputs and outputs in the human body. And so it's really hard to study nutrition in that sense um, because a lot of nutrition research is done through recall. So we take something and we want to know if it correlates with what the patient's diet was. And so we say, okay, how many times did you eat eggs in the last uh, year? And then we kind of say, okay, this is how many eggs they were probably eating per day or per week. Oh my gosh, this population has heart disease. Eggs must cause heart disease. So, you know, we take these studies and we make them into headlines. There was just one this week that red meat causes type 2 diabetes. Um, and, and they get sensationalized. In this day with social media, they get disseminated really quickly. And so people get very, very, very confused, right? Um, now, the other side of the coin is that there's a lot of politics involved um, with not really nutrition recommendations per se, but with our food industry. And then the food industry does have a play in nutrition recommendations, just as an example the traditional food pyramid that came out that basically set us on this path of, of problems. Um, you can remember at the base of the food pyramid, it, it said six to 11 servings of grains per day. So, you know, the, the wheat and the corn and the soy industries and things like this have a very vested interest in, in selling these commodities um, to the processed food manufacturers. If you have to get six to 11 servings of grains per day, you're probably not uh, hand picking your buckwheat and quinoa and like that you're going to be eating bagels and bread and cereals and and highly processed cheap available you know foods um on that same food pyramid the milk industry paid for an extra serving you know like people can buy anything and so that's that's what's really muddied the waters and the unfortunate part is in medicine we're not expected to be nutritionists in any way shape or form uh we don't get a lot of nutrition education Yet we know that the number one intervention for any disease is diet and exercise. So you have all these doctors out there who, you know, they just go by, okay, 50 to 60 carbs per meal. Got it. Okay. Blood sugar up. Okay. Add more insulin. We're just caught in this algorithm and nobody has, you know, really been able to step back and use their brain. And there are some people that are doing this. And, and, um, and I think patients are getting smarter too. Uh, they have people like you and, and I and, and so many people where they can get this information and kind of start to think for themselves because I always tell people you don't need your doctor's permission to eat a particular, you know, diet or way. And um, the solution to a lot of what's really going on in this health crisis is that we all need to take personal accountability for our own health. So then so when we talk about optimal metabolic health and what would you say is the number one most important macronutrient well three macronutrients carbohydrates protein and fat um i like to uh, split them into two categories i think of carbs and fat as energy macronutrients and you cannot overeat one or both of them in combination so if you eat a high-fat, low-carb diet, or if you eat a high-carb, low-fat diet, you can. there are people that can achieve good metabolic health on either of those diets. Um, you can't overeat both. So think of all the foods that we love, donuts, Cheetos, whatever it is. They're all high-carb and high-fat and low in protein. 
So the other side of this coin is this macronutrient called protein. And protein, I don't think of as an energy macronutrient, although it does have four calories per gram. Protein is more like the little Lego building blocks that you want to build the Cinderella castle with. And if you are missing some of these, Cinderella's castle gets turned over. It gets rebuilt. You don't just build it and superglue it. It gets rebuilt on a constant basis and different organ systems in our body turn over. Some of them on a daily basis, like your gut lining can turn over in 24 to 72 hours. And then some of our organs literally are rebuilt every couple weeks to months to years. And these proteins are the building blocks for that. And uh, they're the building blocks for hormones and enzymes and lots of different things inside of our body. And so we have a very specific threshold of these amino acids that we must bring in. Our body can recycle some of them. Um, but protein, uh, in my eyes, is one of the most important macronutrients because when it comes to body composition, and we have found over and over again that even if you eat excess calories from protein, these patients don't gain weight, they actually lose weight. It seems counterintuitive, counterintuitive, but they do. And so if you're a person listening right now that is struggling with metabolic health or you're struggling with your weight, you're struggling with energy, uh, whatever it is, increasing the amount of protein you eat will provide you with satiety. It will provide your muscles with the uh, muscle protein synthesis response that that we need as we age. And as we age, we actually need more protein. So unfortunately, grandma needs more protein than the kids do. And so if you if you can't get this strategy um, implemented in your life, um, you will suffer. And the recommended dietary allowance of protein is set at a very low threshold um, that basically would exclude most people from disease. But that doesn't mean optimal. It doesn't mean the ability to live a full, amazing life and train in the gym and work at the hospital and vacation. And I mean, it's literally to exist. So then if protein's so important, how much should we be trying to aim to get daily? So the recommended dietary allowance of protein is very low. And like I said, it's not optimal. In my opinion, it's different for every individual, but it's really based on your weight. It's based on, you know, how much lean body mass you have that you need to support how much body so when we said kind of Cinderella's castle like how big is your castle that's the you know the pieces you need to take in as we age we actually need more protein if you train hard you need more protein if you are undergoing some sort of metabolic disease or stress you need more protein so in general if you can hit about 0.8 to 1.2 grams per um a pound of your body weight, that's kind of like the upper threshold. Above that, you're probably not getting a lot of benefit. But just as an example, if I'm a 160 pound woman, if I'm eating one gram per pound of body weight, that's 160 grams, which is a lot for most people because they've never, protein is the one macronutrient that it's hard to find. You can find carbs and fat everywhere, right? We need fat. Okay. Uh, eat a piece of cheese, eat this, right? Protein is a lot harder to find. Carbs are really easy to find. Um, but if you think about that, if I break it down, that's like eating 50 grams of protein three times per day, which means that at a meal, um, you know, if four ounces of beef or chicken or salmon is about 25 to 30 grams of protein, that's eating like six to eight ounces of meat three times a day. But for people that don't, you know, prioritize meat in their diet, um, or nutrient dense animal foods, it's hard to find protein. Yeah. So, so two questions there. When you say about 0.8 to 1.2 grams per pound body weight, if someone is dropping weight, they're not at their 
optimal weight should they do that equation according to their optimal weight or their current weight so it, you want it to be your your optimal weight so i never recommend setting the protein above 200 grams so like for my patients that are over 200 pounds like we're not trying to go to yeah. you know 250 grams of protein a day right. ideally your optimal weight and as you're in the weight loss phase it's actually very important to strategize protein in the diet because as you lose weight if you lose 50 pounds we want you losing the majority of that as 50 pounds of fat yeah. visceral fat and subcutaneous fat and not your muscle we know in general in patients that lose uh, weight uh, especially large amounts of weight that upwards of 30, sometimes some studies show 50% of the weight loss can be lean body mass. And if you lose your muscle, then you become, you can become fatter than you were before. I know it doesn't make sense, but as a percentage of your, of your body weight, um, your body fat percentage and your skeletal muscle mass percentage, you can be just as fat. So you want to strategize keeping your muscle on your body, which means eating adequate dietary protein and doing strength training in the weight loss phase. How often should one strength train? So, you know, you can stimulate muscle protein synthesis through a good a protein meal. So eating 30 to 50 grams of high quality protein, like when you wake up in the morning, will stimulate that. But weight training, I would say a minimum of three times per week. Start at two, work up to three. I probably wouldn't go more than five. Um, but weight training on a consistent basis not only has benefits to your muscles as far as just pure body composition, just trying to grow your muscles, but we know that there's benefits to exercise and weight training. There's actually chemicals that are secreted when you train that uh, nourish your brain cells, um, like BDNF. It actually, there's a study in children shows that they get better grades in school when they weight train. I mean, it's, it's doing more than just trying to grow your biceps. Um, it's good for your mental health. We know it decreases anxiety and depression. I mean, anybody that's going through a chronic disease, almost all of these patients suffer from mental health problems, poor body confidence. I mean, there is just, there is literally nothing except your time and effort um, that you have to give up to, to do this. The benefits are like above and beyond. Yeah, that makes sense. That's what we tell all of our clients at PhD to do is to lift weights, overload the muscles somehow in some way. And we make sure to get adequate protein so people don't become skinny fat, really, which yeah, and what they're finding uh, with some thin tied and these. Oh, for sure. For sure. And what's, you know, I think when people hear the word weightlifting, I mean, I say it to my patients and I see the deer in the headlights look, what people need to hear and understand is that the amount of weight training needed to see benefit is actually quite small. For instance, there's like a 2021 study that looked at a population of women 65 and older, right? Most of these ladies are not weight training. They did a 16-week intervention. They worked out three times per week with body weight or band training, resistance bands, okay? We're not talking plates on a bar. And all of these women in the treatment group improved their strength, improved their functional fitness, improved their grip strength, improved their gait speed. So, you know, the amount of work required to see benefit is actually quite small. So when, when you and I say things like you got to lift weights, you got to weight train, people are thinking about a 500 pound back squat. And that is just simply not what's required. Mm -hmm. That's a great point. So when we talk about protein, you've been talking a lot about animal protein. What if someone's not open to eating animal protein? What can they do to optimize their intake there? 
So if you're eating plant proteins, um, none of them come in a in a complete package. So you have to eat complementary plant foods to get complementary amino acids to get the whole, uh, you know, uh, amino acid profile required. There's actually a new um, calculator that's going to be coming out in the next year or two, hopefully here. Donald Lehman has been doing this work. And what it's going to show is that if you're eating plant proteins, it's just not an optimal strategy as far as body composition and metabolic health. It can be done if you have some sort of personal ethical reason why you want to exclude animal foods from your diet. Um, but the amount of calories required to be ingested to equal the same amount of amino acids in animal food, you have to eat more calories to achieve that threshold. So that's the problem, um, is that you can eat less calories um, when you get them from animal foods and you're getting a better amino acid profile. So I'm not saying it can't be done, it's just not the most optimal strategy. Along with other things in plant-based diets that are deficient, B12, vitamin D, there's lots of things that are deficient if you're eating a, a vegan, vegetarian, or, or you know, whole food plant-based diet. There's so many things that need to be supplemented because our soils have been very depleted, our plants and fruits, and just don't have the nutrients and micronutrients that we'd like to believe they have. Um, and like I said, you're eating the cost of, of more energy and more calories when you do that. Yeah, and usually more carbs come in that package too. Yep, they? usually quite a, quite a few. Yeah. Okay, so when we're talking about optimal metabolic health, we talked about protein intake and resistance training. Is there anything else that comes into the picture to optimize metabolic health? And is the picture different for men versus women? Well, women are definitely more complex than men because our hormones are a lot more complex. We, have, we are a reproductive creature. Not that men aren't reproductive creatures, but uh, due to our menstrual cycle, um, we in different phases of our life, um, yes, things change. I mean, our physiology literally changes on a monthly basis when we're menstruating. We see more insulin sensitivity in follicular phase. We see more insulin resistance in luteal phase. We see major changes after menopause when women lose estrogen. Um, as you lose estrogen, there's actually a change in mitochondrial gene transcription and insulin resistance starts to go up, visceral fat starts to get deposited. So estrogen is actually quite protective to us women. So we want to think we have it harder than men because they can lose 10 pounds faster than us. But estrogen is very good for us. It's good for our brains. It's protective to our arteries. Um, but we are reproductive creatures. So, you know, we are... Uh, the body is constantly sensing if this is a good time to reproduce. And so when we stress the body, when we're doing like tons of fasting and low calorie diets and uh, or we have metabolic disease or we're overeating, we're overfeeding, um, our bodies don't do well with that. Our bodies like something called homeostasis, which is just this like nice, slow, steady. It's not like big swings up and down. And so women are prone to those types of things, uh, or excuse me, more susceptible to those types of stressors. Um, to your original question, you know, what beyond nutrition and weight training impact metabolic health? Um, sleep is a huge one. Um, sleep is something that we do every day. I hope people are doing it every day, every night. Um, but sleep is when our body is repairing and regenerating and making hormones, and it's part of our circadian rhythm. So for instance, when we wake up in the morning, we're supposed to get this boost of cortisol. We're supposed to get sunlight um, that, that stimulates a reduction in melatonin. And then opposite of that, in the evening time, 
as the light goes down, the sun goes down. We're supposed to have the lowest cortisol of the day. Melatonin will come up. So many things in our life are set by the presence and absence of sunlight and the feeding and fasting windows and when we're sleeping and when we're awake. So sleep is a really important part of your metabolic health. Um, other, the other part of that equation is, is just stress in general, and it can be emotional, psychological, or physical stress. You can overtrain, you can be overly emotional, you can be under an intense amount of psychological stress, and these things can affect your metabolic health. Um, we live in a very fast-paced society. Um, we have our sympathetic nervous system turned on all the time, um, and your body doesn't know if a bear is coming to attack you or if your boss just yelled at you. So we have to figure out outlets in our life to deal with this and tap into our parasympathetic nervous system. So in med school, they teach you fight or flight is sympathetic. Parasympathetic is rest and digest. So we need to be spending more of our waking hours doing kind of this non-sleep deep rest. We're doing breath work. We're doing meditation. We're recovering. Maybe you're in the sauna. Maybe you're red lighting. Maybe you're just hanging out with friends you're laughing, you're being social. We need to incorporate these things into our life. Um, and the people that we do it with are really important. Um, but it's just funny because that's not something that people would think of when it comes to metabolic health, but it does play a role. Yeah. And we definitely don't take it as a priority. And sometimes I think we feel guilty for doing those things because we are in such a fast-paced society. We feel like if we're not working, then we're not performing. So that's well, important. unfortunately with, you know, social media and things like that, you think you have this window into everyone else's life and all you're seeing is the highlight reel and you're sitting there like, oh my God, I got to keep up. I got to keep up. I got to keep up. And, um, you know, we didn't used to have that in the 80s and 90s. There are some good things about that. You just lived your life, but yeah. Yeah. Okay. So when it comes to menopause, you know, a lot of the listeners are dealing with menopause, post-menopausal what do we need to shift in our nutrition to support our metabolic health as we go through that life stage transition? Well, as we go through this menopausal transition, what's happening is we're losing estrogen, progesterone. We may lose some testosterone or androgen production as well. And like I had described earlier, with the loss of estrogen, you start to have symptoms like hot flashes and night sweats, vaginal dryness, things that people can see and feel. But we also start to see more insulin resistance, more visceral fat, brain fog occurs because literally there's a 30% reduction in brain energy, your joints start hurting, your bones are demineralizing, and you're losing your muscle at a faster rate. Now, I'm a huge fan of hormone replacement therapy, but that's like its own whole podcast. Um, you like that? Yeah, I'm a fan. I'm a fan of, of hormone replacement therapy. And I think so many people view it as like, oh, I don't like medicine. I'm tired of people pushing like prescriptions on me. You know, a, a patient asked me a very interesting question um, one day, and she was like, "What is what's the point of menopause?" Like it was a very like you know like, what is God's plan? And um, I said, "Well, you know, as a species, most most species reproduce and then they die, and that's probably what humans were supposed to do: reproduce and then and then die. Because because when you look at our lifespan, we didn't used to live as long as we did now." Most of that is because of child and infant mortality. We, we're keeping babies alive that, that otherwise would have died. And so that's extending the, the average lifespan. But this day and age, we do have modern advances that, that have kept us alive longer and, and we're able to live with diseases longer. 
And women are living more years past menopause than ever before. And so, you know, I tell women, you know, who, who say like, well, I don't want to, I want everything to be natural. That's totally fine. But you have to understand that it decreases your lifespan. If I cut out a woman's ovaries before age 65, surgical menopause, I just chop them out. I reduce her lifespan by 10 years. So it's not necessarily that I'm trying to push a statin or medication or, you know, and I don't push anything on anybody. Your belief in what it's going to do for you is really important. But I, I am a fan of it because um, I want to live a really long time, but I also don't want joint pain. And, you know, I don't I, I don't want diabetes and I don't want cancer and I don't want all these things. And I know that if I give hormones within 10 years of menopause, it significantly reduces the risk of diabetes, osteoporosis, colorectal cancer. I mean, a lot of things. And so for the right patient, I'm a huge fan of it. Yeah. But from a lifestyle standpoint, for somebody listening, that is going through this this stage, now's the time to double down on the things that we've already talked about in the podcast. Your resiliency to a, to a bad diet, going out on a weekend and eating a plate of nachos and two glasses of wine, your resiliency is no longer there. So you got to get the diet dialed in. You got to prioritize the protein and you can't overeat carbohydrates and fat. Um, fasting is sometimes a good tool in this stage for people, um, but it's not for everybody. It is just a tool. Um, the resistance training, now is the time. Trust me, if you're your older self, it's never too late um, for your the sake of your bones and your muscles and your ability to not fall and break a hip. Um, you got to start doing some doing some weight training. Sleep continues to be important. Stress continues to be important. All of these things are really important. But um, you will find as you make this menopausal transition that your body will start to change in ways that you've never seen before, and you will feel like you're out of control. So menopause is the time to take control. What about fasting? Can you talk a little bit about your favorite protocols? Because there are so many thoughts out there on the 16, 8, 24 hours, 72 hours for longevity purposes. What do you think about, about fasting? And So just like everything, I mean, it can be overdone. I've seen patients that are like, I'm fasting 72 hours every week. And, you know, you have to kind of think like, what is the end goal? You know, if you have a massive amount of weight to lose, I mean, we've seen the Guinness Book of World Record. You know, people can lose hundreds of pounds by just, you know, fasting. Um, we know that patients can reduce their basal insulin and glucose rates um, by just doing alternate day fasting, which is like eating three meals one day and just dinner the next day. Um, there are there are benefits to fasting, but just like everything, it can be overdone. And so if you are chronically in a caloric deficit through this fasting, we know chronic caloric deprivation is good for longevity, but it also increases your risk of malnutrition and losing your lean body mass. And so you want to be strategic about it. Um, I do think eating earlier in the day is better. So I find what a lot of patients do is try to fast till lunchtime. And to be honest, it's completely opposite of like the American paradigm of like family dinner. But honestly, if you're going to skip a meal, you'd be better served eating breakfast and lunch and skipping dinner. Um, and that's just based on our circadian rhythm. Um, when we wake up in the morning, our body, our muscles are primed for, for that protein to be coming in. Um, I'm not saying that you know, there are some people that maybe just do lunch and dinner and, and have great metabolic health. But but I think based off circadian rhythm, you want to be getting that energy earlier in the day. 
when you're using it throughout the day, I find that patients that fast till lunchtime and by dinner time, they are like in the kitchen, like anything they can find to put in their mouths. Like now they're hungry. They waited way too long. Um, I find when they eat earlier in the day, they do better in the evenings. It's just emotional in the evenings for most people. They just, it's the end of the day. They sit down on the couch, they turn on Netflix and like now they want a bowl of ice cream or a bowl of popcorn or whatever it is. Um, but, and they're staying up way too late. They should just go to bed earlier. <laughs> yeah. I have Invisalign now. So it's like, that's what I do. It's like, I'll pop my Invisalign in and it's like, okay, now I can't put anything else yeah. in my mouth. Yeah. But I, I think fasting is a good tool. I think it creates a structure for people that kind of says, okay, I'm only eating in this window and I'm not eating in this window. And for somebody like me that like thought about food all day long, when's my next snack coming? When's my next meal coming? It kind of gives them that framework and that structure to say like, and kind of forces them to plan it out a little bit. Um, but I love fasting because like for somebody like me who I might be in the operating room and then I got to deliver a baby and then I got to be at my daughter's softball game. Sometimes I don't know when my next meal is coming, but I have felt so free with my lifestyle of, you know, I eat fat, I eat protein. I'm not hungry. I'm not hangry. I'm not looking for my next carb fix. Um, fasting's great. I do it when I travel sometimes, when I know I'm not going to have, you know, good healthy food available. Um, and like I said, we do know that when used appropriately, it can increase longevity by not overeating. Yeah. So many benefits to becoming fat adapted, which you do when you drop your carbohydrates to underneath your tolerance level. And the, the hunger is much more dull when you do get hungry, right? You feel much more in control. Um, and I, I hear that from clients all the time when we can teach the body to burn fat for fuel. Yeah. You want to keep your engine running, like just for just to hit this home one more time, Ashley, anorexia, where, where patients literally starve themselves, they actually become insulin resistant. They lose their muscle and they become so thin and so frail and they have not eaten in so long that they can actually become insulin resistant. So it's not about starving yourself. It's about fueling yourself properly. It's about viewing few, viewing food as a fuel source, as, as something that's going to, how is it going to make you feel? Um, it's not just strictly about calories and energy. Yeah. And I think once you get your metabolism into this healthy place, your signals are more clear. So you can trust what your body's telling you. You, it, when it actually tells you you're hungry, you, you can trust that you can trust when it's full. Uh, when we're carbohydrate and sugar burners, primarily our sensations and feelings all are, are all over the place. And we can't really trust what our body's telling us to do. 100%. 100%. It's like my mom used to say, like, if you would need a chicken breast right now, you're not hungry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We have a great coach on our team. And she says, true hunger eats a hard boiled egg. So yeah. think about it. <laughs> would you really eat a hard boiled egg right now? A lot yeah, of times. Exactly. Probably no. Yeah, well, could you talk a little bit about supplementation? There's so many supplements out there specifically targeting women's health. What supplements should we consider? What are the right choices when it comes to that? Well, I think supplements should be used for a specific purpose for a specific duration. You know, ideally, we get everything we need, you know, through our diets and have supplements like 100 years ago. Um, there are some supplements that, you know, if I had to pick like my top three or top five, there are some big ones that I'm a huge fan of. Um, in general, I see patients spending hundreds, hundreds of dollars a month on a bunch of stuff they don't need. Um, and 
the unfortunate part is about the supplement industry is a lot of times there's not exactly everything in there that you think is in there. There could be things in there that you don't think are in there. Um, supplements can be contaminated, with heavy metals and, and all sorts of things. So know where you're getting your supplements from if you're supplementing. I would say there's some big ones, though. Um, I'm a huge fan of creatine supplementation. You get creatine from eating meat. But the data suggests that um, getting more than probably what you could get through eating meat is good for our muscles and our brain. There's some really compelling research coming out about brain health and creatine supplementation. A lot of people used to think of it like a steroid, like it's what the bodybuilders use. But just plain creatine monohydrate, monohydrate is really good for brain health and for muscle health. So I do that on a daily basis. Um, I supplement electrolytes on a daily basis because when you eat a low-carb diet, you you have increased sodium and potassium needs. And um, and so I do that on a daily basis with my creatine. Um, if you don't eat a lot of omega-3s in the diet, like fish oil is a really good one. Once again, that's a really important one. You got to know where it's coming from. I mean, there's krill oil, algae oil. There's lots of different forms of getting those omega-3s. But most people's diets are really high in omega-6s, which is very pro-inflammatory and pro-insulin resistance. So getting more omega-3s in the diet um, can help a lot of things. Um, vitamin D, um, a little bit of a controversial one. I'm, you know, a fan of getting sunlight. I live in Nebraska where we're at a specific latitude of the earth where we can get a lot of good sunlight in the winter. Um, and I see some really abysmal vitamin D levels. Um, vitamin D can also be driven down um, because of insulin resistance, magnesium deficiency. So there's a lot of nuances with vitamin D, but the data would suggest that having appropriate vitamin D levels is is uh, very good for our health, of course. Um, beyond that, I mean, there's a lot of things that I'll use for specific reasons, but those are, uh, and magnesium also. I kind of meant to say that with vitamin D. I'm a huge fan of magnesium supplementation, especially in women's health. I'll use magnesium 3 and 8 for headaches. I'll use magnesium glycinate for sleep, um, menstrual cramps, um, uh, premenstrual dysphoric disorder. I use magnesium for a lot of different things. And um, that one's pretty deficient in our diet. So I think uh, I think that's a good one too. But there's so many others I could talk about. But like I said, for the vast majority of people, they're taking way too many things. Like if you think that a supplement is that magical, if you haven't dialed in your diet and dialed in your training and your sleep and all of these things, quit wasting your money on all of these things that you think are going to be so magical. Yeah, I agree with you there. What about um, kid nutrition? And so I know you have three kids. I have three kids myself too. How do you try to support them with their nutrition in a way that allows them to to grow and to have a good mindset around it, but also to, to be as healthy as possible? Well, the brutally honest truth is that when my husband and I first started fixing our own lifestyle, we were not fixing our children's lifestyle. So like my husband and I were making salmon for dinner and then cooking the girls mac and cheese. Yeah. Um, that's just the, the, the brutal truth. Then, um, once we kind of got our diet into place, my kids started to say things like, well, mommy, why are you eating that? And I'm eating this. I was like, wait, what? And I think as a mom, you know, you just want people to eat dinner and not complain. Right. And just, go on with their, their evening. But, um, and a lot of it is convenience, you know, as a mom, you're just like, I mean, and I will be the first to admit I had a newborn one-year-old and three-year-old at one point. Like I'm just trying to put, I'm trying to, everyone's trying to survive here. We're living in the trenches. 
But, you know, now we're at a place in our life where the girls are a little bit older and they can participate in the kitchen and and they have, you know, a sense and a wherewithal of, of what's going on. And so in about 2018, um, kind of like two, two and a half years into our journey, we started to clean up the kids' diets and we just said, okay, whatever we're eating, they're eating. Now, I was very low carbon ketogenic. I did I was not restricting carbs to that level in my children. They were still eating fruit or they might have some rice or they might have a low carb tortilla. Your children can can tolerate much more than you can because they are on the move all day long. I mean, they're not sitting at a desk. They're like, you know, running around the playground and and playing multiple sports. Um, but we do prioritize protein and healthy fats for them um, because that keeps them from being a total snack monster. A lot of times the reason kids are like, I need a fruit snack. I need a granola bar. I need an apple juice. I needed this is because they are burning that sugar, but they're just they're never getting satiety because they're never getting that protein. And the amount of protein needed for kids for muscle protein synthesis is actually much less than us. Remember, I said grandma needs more than the grandchildren do. So you can give them, you know, two eggs and they're going to stimulate muscle protein. They don't have to eat 30 to 50 grams of protein like we do. Um, you know, they can eat smaller amounts of protein and still they're growing and they are getting lots of different hormones, especially as they come into that, you know, teenage stage. So for my girls, um, we prioritize protein. So whatever protein my husband and I are eating, whether it's beef, salmon, eggs, whatever, they eat that same thing. And then, like I said, they might add some more, you know, carbohydrates to the meal. Um, but for us, it's not teaching them that there's like bad foods. For instance, I'll let my kids have a cookie. But I say things like, if we eat the cookie, that's energy. We have to go use it. So they're not going to eat a cookie and sit on the couch. They're going to eat a cookie and go shoot baskets in the driveway. So, you know, it's just about, you know, teaching them how to make their own decisions because I know that one day, very soon, they're going to leave my house and they're going to have to go decide for themselves in this crazy world where there's like delicious, highly palatable processed foods. So, you know, let them participate in the kitchen, let them cook. Like my oldest daughter can make scrambled eggs now. And I think when you just empower them with like skills and knowledge and education, like that's the best thing you can do as a parent, you know, just like you teach them how to tie their shoes, like, you know, teach them how to eat and they are watching you. Um, I'm just amazed like what my girls have implemented in their life by just kind of like watching what my husband and I do. That's how we learn everything. Yeah. Yeah. My kids will learn a little bit of nutrition in school and they'll say, Hey, they showed us the, the, my play in the food pyramid. I know that's just not true. That's not the way we should be eating. So they definitely do pick up what we do. Um, what are some examples of snacks that you have around the house for the kids that include some protein, a good combo there? Yeah. So my kids do love, you know, like jerky um, or we have that my oldest daughter loves like the carnivore crisp. They're like a crunchier version of jerky. Um, we also, we keep little cups of like cottage cheese um, uh, or string cheese or yogurt um, or things like that. Um, there are some foods that have, you know, carbs that still, um, if they contain protein in them, you know, um, that will decrease the glycemic index of foods. So if you're going to, if you're going to look, I always like to see that there's equal amounts of protein to fat in a product. That's amazing. Um, if you can get like a one-to-one -one ratio. Um, and then if there's carbs in there, you want to make sure there's protein in there because that'll blunt that response too. But I mean, they'll occasionally eat, you know, uh, bars and things like that. Not on a regular basis. We use those um, more when we're on the go. Like uh, if they're going to go to basketball practice, they can tolerate, you know, some carbohydrates. But um, for the most part, if they're getting what they need in a meal, 
we really shouldn't need snacks. That's like the real, the real honest answer. But um, but there there are better things out there than than you just have to kind of open your eyes and look around a little bit. What are your favorite protein bars for you? So I really don't eat bars at all. Um, I really just try to get my protein with my meals. But I have seen um, there's one from Marigold that has like a grass fed whey in it. It's like the cleanest bar I've ever seen. You have to keep it in the fridge. And it is like a dessert. So we keep the cookie dough ones in the fridge. My husband really likes those if we just like have a sweet tooth and we're like, and you know, boom, it's like 18 grams of protein or something like that. Um, my new favorite thing though is um, when my husband was bodybuilding, he used to make something called protein sludge at night. So he would take like a scoop of whey, like grass fed whey, and he'd put like one to two tablespoons of milk with some like whipped cream on top. And it literally tastes like dessert. And um, the other night I made one with pumpkin uh, with like a vanilla beef protein isolate from a quip and with cottage yeah. cheese and pumpkin and pumpkin spice literally tasted like pumpkin cheesecake. So, so that's kind of our thing. If we like have a sweet tooth, we figure out how to make like a protein dessert <laughs> taste like dessert. Yeah. Um, but uh, other than that, I really just eat all my protein with meals. Yeah, you're not much of a snacker. But I don't have much time to snack. I mean, if you if you see me wandering the kitchen, I'm probably browsing. But <laughs> thankfully, yeah, I don't like spend much time. Equip, that's the yeah. kind that we are using chocolate. And I like the college. The chocolate collagen is pretty delicious. too. Yeah, it's got collagen and gelatin in it, which is awesome. Um, I was a little like when I first got it, I'm like, is this going to taste like beef? Yeah. Like I just had it in my mind that it would be like taste like a beef milkshake or something <laughs> like that. But it doesn't. It's 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 good. It's good. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Seaman, for being on the show with me. Great information. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with the listeners before you head out? Well, you can find me on social media. I'm at Dr. Fit and Fabulous on Instagram. I've got a website, drfitandfabulous.com. I've got a link to my book, Hard to Kill, that came out. uh, Oh, my God. It's like been a year and a half now. And, uh, and I really appreciate everybody listening because we depend on all of you to share these messages around the world. That's right. Thank you so much. It was great to meet you. Wow. What an amazing episode that was with Dr. Jamie Seaman. I hope that you got massive value, great information. You have some good takeaways. If you are watching this on YouTube, please subscribe and leave a comment below. I will be watching the comments and will respond to all of them. If you're listening to this on a podcast platform, please follow, subscribe, leave a review. It really impacts the algorithm and lets us impact more people. Remember, you got to step up to make the change. Lead with your heart, train your mind, and do not negotiate with your body. I'll see you next time. 